This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's a Europod first since the World Cups. Can some experts just put us in the picture with what's happening over there? Could this be the year for Napoli? Hammering Juve, nine points clear, loads of fun. What's not to like? Below them, a bun fight for the top four between the usual suspects. Barcelona win the Super Cup in that most Spanish of towns, Riyadh. Gavi scores and sets up two. In La Liga, Real Sociedad are leading the best of the rest. Could they mount a title challenge? In France, PSG lose to Rennes and are annoyed with the mayor of Paris. There's also the sentence, Philippe, the French FA, dot, dot, dot. So imagine that's one for the lawyers. And if there's time, we'll get to Portugal, the Eredivisie and Cyprus. I said if we have time. Brackets, we didn't have time. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Week. On the panel today, Philippe Auclair, bonjour, ça va? Ça va bien, bonjour, Max. Uh, hello, Lars Sivertsen. Hey, Max. And uh, doing a Sid Lowe cameo. It's catching. <laughs> this is terrible news. Nikki Bandini, welcome. Well, um, it's news to welcome to you, Max. Hi. I don't have any no. ham, I'm afraid. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> but don't make it, you know, don't, don't make a habit of it. Sid is viewed very lowly <laughs> for just doing his part and then buggering off. Um, but let's start with Serie A then, uh, Nikki. Um, David says, Napoli, eh? can they do it? They beat Juve 5-1 on Friday night. I mean, did anybody see that coming? I don't know if, if I, I would say I saw that coming. Um, I, I think that result was was astonishing and, and the sort of extent of how um of how far away Napoli felt from the events at the end was was surprising. But I also wasn't surprised that Napoli won. Um, I know there'd been this narrative building and I think a lot of people are buying into it because it's Juventus, because they are the evil villain at the end of the movie who just won't die. And they've won eight games in a row and they've got eight clean sheets and it's Max Allegri and they're going to come there and they're going to do this this sort of dark magic and somehow beat this team that's better than them. I think a lot of people really bought into that. And I think that there's sort of this tendency always in football to hold on to narratives that we're familiar with. And we're familiar with the narrative of Juventus, who always are, as their mantra goes, fino alla fine and get it done at the end. Um, and there's the narrative of Napoli, who always blow it when they have their chance. But those narratives don't stack up with the football we're seeing this season. Juventus, yes, they went eight games without conceding a goal, but my goodness, if you watch some of those games, you'd have a hard time understanding how, because even against Cremonese two weeks ago, they should have conceded probably twice in that game, let alone um, keeping a clean sheet. Meanwhile, Napoli, 
yeah, they had a they had a real sort of, I guess, a, a rude awakening to start the year because they hadn't lost in the first part of the season. They lost immediately to Inter when they got back. But that game aside, they have been not just winning games, but sweeping teams away. So I, I was sceptical of this idea that Juventus actually had enough in the tank to come in and beat them at, at the Maradona. Uh, Lars, you loved this as well, didn't you? Well, yeah, because I think, again, falling back on tired narratives, you, you always, you know, it's because it's happened before, we assume it'll happen again, that Juventus are just coming behind them. Like, the movie villain, I hear that, but I, I feel like they're more the zombie horde, you know, that <laughs> Napoli are, <laughs> Napoli are like the, the people who are sort of, they're running away from the zombie horde, and sometimes they're running very fast, and maybe they find a car now and again, sometimes they fall down, and they're, they're, they might slip, <laughs> and uh, like behind them, this doom, 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 this evil sort of <laughs> white and uh, and uh, black mass of sort of zombies, and, and, and these sort of unimpressive but steady victories where they were not that good, but they kept, kept, here comes Juventus behind them. Uh, 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 but, but no, I'm not sure how far we want to take the zombie metaphor, but the uh, Friday night was definitely... I'm Nap- still enjoying it. I'm still Fr- enjoying Friday it. night was basically definitely Napoli taking a chainsaw to some of those zombies <laughs> and and doing their worst because that was uh, that was extraordinary. It was so much fun. And I was, uh, I, I was trying to pay attention to another game that was happening simultaneously, but it was impossible to take your eyes off that one. Yeah, Aston Villa Leeds was the other one. Sorry. Yes. I, I was trying to think in my head as, as Lars was doing that because like... Oh, a lot of zombie movies don't have like classic movie sort of protagonists like in, in the, the lead roles. It was, it was World War Z like Brad Pitt? I can't remember. There was like one of those ones that I had. Because to me, like now when I watch Serie A, Victor Osserman is, Victor Osserman is, is my main character. Victor Osserman is my, my, my superstar. And so that's kind of like almost the counterpoint to the zombies. You know, someone's going to survive and it, it looks like it's him because he's, he's unreal. I mean, he's so, so good. And together with Gradat Scalia, were were just absolutely sort of um, on fire in this game. I mean, look, Napoli were not perfect by any stretch. In fact, defensively, they were quite bad at times in this game. And and from 2-0 up, could have easily been 2-all at halftime because um, Marat had to pull off a brilliant save from Rahmani, who who nearly put one through his own net just for halftime after Di Maria scored a really good goal to get them back into it. But when they go forward, and I mean, again, look, um, Juventus were naive. They made some mistakes. This sort of decision by... Max Allegri to throw Federico Chiesa into the team. Exciting idea, but putting him at right wing back when he's not a wing back and you've got Kvaratskhelia on that side of the pitch didn't seem like a particularly inspired choice. But yeah, Kvaratskhelia and Osimhen between them are uh, such a force to be reckoned with. And it's like, this isn't just this game. This is putting five past Liverpool. This is putting six past Ajax in Amsterdam. This is a pattern. This is something that's been going on all season. So that's what I mean when I say, yeah, okay, I get it. We all expect Juventus to be Juventus at some point, but this isn't surprising. Napoli are this good. Yeah, Nikki, I'm I'm trying um, to shoehorn as many references to the North London derby as I can in this Europod. And uh, <laughs> so I have a question too for you. Uh, could you say that Napoli is a kind of Italian arsenal at the moment in terms of the football they play? But do they also have the same, perhaps, question mark put around there, which is about the depth of the squad and the fact that they're so dependent on two, three exceptional players. I mean, is the simile, does the simile hold at all? 
which of course is a completely artificial simile, and it's only there to annoy Lars and Max. <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 I'm good with that one, but um, it's also made me laugh, Max Philippe, because this morning I was literally like reading a headline: Arsenal are the English Napoli. So, like initially, it's absolutely being told that way around. Like when they're reporting on Arsenal, it's yeah, it's it's, it's saying it that way around. And in fact, on Sky they had a big graphic, and um, on Caressa's show they had a big graphic pointing out basically how low Napoli's wage bill is compared to other big European sides. And they had Arsenal on there as sort of another virtuous example, actually sort of comparing them with PSGU. I mean, Napoli's wage bill is um, like 68 million euros um, and they had a PSG on there at 350 odd. So highlighting those those gaps, um, Arsenal were also put on the graphic as well. So yes, Philippe, you can make that comparison and I support it. (laughs) Well, I, I wanted to put something to Nikki while we have you here, is that another thing that I'd kind of like to hear you talk about is that it's really fascinating. Listen, it's not a new thing that Luciano Spalletti has put together a team that plays exciting football. We've seen this before, but it's so fascinating because he is quite a dour man. <laughs> like he's he's such he's not very flamboyant as as a person. He's quite sort of. I've, I've spoken to someone who's worked uh, with him a bit who says that he's quite gruff and not super easy to get along with. He's not super charming in the press or anything, but his teams, when he gets it right, his teams are absolutely joyous to watch. I I think there's there's a. <laughs> There's layers to Spalletti. Um, it's interesting that way you put it, and I think it's true. Sort of in in his sort of press conference demeanor, he can he can be quite gruff, um, and he has a certain sort of angry energy about him sometimes that that comes across. But I mean, this was one of the the little subplots. Of this game was the the pre match sort of subtle mind games that went on between him and. Um, and Allegri and and Spalletti was doing that. Oh no, I'm not as good as him. He's got all these trophies. I have to learn from him beforehand. And um, and Allegri was saying he described him as buffo e divertente. And buffo is like a slightly hard word to translate because it means funny, but it kind of means like zany. It means wacky. So he was saying, oh, you know, he's a wacky character. So that's Spalletti. Um, and this sort of characterization of each other was like this really fascinating subplot to me. And then at the end, I don't know if you saw the video, Spalletti goes to this handshake with him and it's this so really good. Like exaggerated like <laughs> So I think Spalletti actually is is quite um a flamboyant character in, in some ways. In fact, Totti in his scathing at times reflections on Spalletti has talked about him being the sort of manager who runs naked down a corridor. Phrase in a way where you think, did that literally happen? Or are you just sort of exaggerating a character? But the implication being that that's the thing that Spalletti would do. The Italian Tony Pulis. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> but I mean, but but I think this sort of idea that, that Spalletti isn't a winner also is really overplayed. And that's why I thought when Spalletti's saying that, it was sort of reported at very face value. And I thought, can he really believe that? Oh, Allegri, you're the big winner. I mean, he's won at Zenit twice. He won the league title there. He also took Roma to two cup titles when they hadn't won a cup for 15 years. He's not someone who's won nothing in football. Um, and I don't really believe that his own self, sense of his own self-value is that low. I think he probably thinks quite highly of himself. I think the same way that um, defensive uh, defenders who become managers tend to be attack-minded, very often the most flamboyant of managers on the touchline are the most defensive ones. I mean, Mourinho and Conte, I mean, you can't do better than that. And they're not exactly preaching the kind of football that uh, you see Spalletti preach and practice, really. Just an observation. I think this will eventually be Napoli's undoing 
on some stage, perhaps in Europe. Um, Spalletti sort of saying afterwards, like, we can't, and again, sort of is, is a bit of mind games going on, right? It's a bit of sort of him finding a way to talk down at Juventus, but saying we can't play like them. We can't sit in front of our area. That's not how we're ever going to win games. Saying that even the goal they conceded came from basically, the way he phrased it, saying, you know, getting into too many um, tackles in midfield. That's not what we do. We shouldn't play like that. We should play just always on the front foot, always trying to score goals, because if we get involved in a in a, in a battle, we'll lose it. Um, so it really is like a, a mindset that they've embraced it at Napoli, that you just always play with the ball, you always play on the front foot. And I think it comes with vulnerabilities. I think there will be teams that can get behind them and score goals. And I think there will be teams like Inter did in the first game back that that can find a way to to suffocate that supply line between Kvaratskhelia and Osimhen. But I, I, I don't think there's any ambiguity in my mind that this is the best team in Italy right now. Things can change. It's only halfway through a season, but I think that they're confidently the best team in Italy today. Is there any danger that either of them will, will go? Because you talk about those relative wage bills. Clearly, they will be in demand from probably Premier League clubs. And it would be such a shame. They, I mean, they dovetailed so well, you know, in, in that game. I mean, I haven't watched every single Napoli game. And when I've seen them in the Champions League as well, it would be a shame to break them apart. I expect there'll be very serious offers this summer. I don't think it's going to happen this January. Um, and, I, and I don't think Napoli would entertain it this January. De Laurentiis is, um, the owner De Laurentiis, obviously like a extremely wealthy film producer, I suppose in football terms, not extremely wealthy, but extremely wealthy, not someone who um, who needs to 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 drop everything and, and sell someone immediately. And there's no indication that the players want to go right now. Mm-hmm. I think if they win the league, it's going to be hard to keep that team together, is my honest opinion. But I think that's why they've got to win it this season, really. Um, and if he's a film producer, he can he can make the zombie. Fit. He can get. <laughs> he can say, Victor, if you hang about, I can actually cast you as well. Um, it's interesting looking at looking at the other sides in the Champions League. You know, because Milan have got Spurs, Napoli have got Eintracht Frankfurt, Inter have got Porto, and and you can sort of tell me how they're getting on in Serie A at the same time, but you sort of feel like they've all got quite a good chance there. You know, I don't know if Seri- if that is just a quirk of fate or that Serie A is in rude health at the moment. I think it's in better health than it has been in some recent seasons. I don't think we're suddenly talking about a Serie A of the 1990s where these teams are all on a par with the best teams in Europe. I don't believe that. Um, I think they're all they're all interesting in their own ways. I I think Napoli, like I've said, are, are comfortably the, the, the best of that group. But I think that Inter, strangely, are probably on their day as capable as anyone. I think they have a really, really talented squad when you look at it, Inter. When you really get into it, when you think, okay, if you get Lautaro when he's good, because he is a very hot and cold player, but you get him when he's good, he's brilliant. Edin Dzeko absolutely can still do things. The midfield with Brozovic and Barella and then taking your pick for that third spot, but, you know, could be Chalanoglu in there with him. They're really, really top level players. Barella is, in my opinion, not far behind Osterman in the category of best players who didn't get to play at the World Cup. I think Barella's having an astonishing year, just not noticed as much because he wasn't at the World Cup. Um, so it's a really strong midfield. They've been really bad at the back this season, really, really bad. And yet even there, when you go player for player and you say, well, hang on, Skriniar, Bastoni, Acerbi's having a great season actually individually. You put that group together and that's the same group that was one of the best defences in Serie A last season. So when it all clicks, that team can play anybody. And I think Inter are probably the greatest disappointment in Serie A this season because they're just not being consistent because they are conceding cheap goals and throwing away games they should win. Milan, I think, talent-wise, are actually a little bit behind. I think they certainly don't have the depth of Inter or Napoli. 
but they've been overachieving. They're actually the team that I think gets more than the sum of its parts on a regular basis. And I think Rafael Leao obviously can elevate them. Teo Hernandez can elevate them, although he's also absolutely a defensive liability. Hmm. But I, I think that player for player, they, they lack something in that team compared to Napoli or Inter. I think they aren't actually quite at the same level for pure talent as those rivals. Paolo says, uh, the current Roma side under Mourinho, despite the trophy, which he puts in inverted commas, which is harsh. I mean, it is literally <laughs> a trophy, are dreadful to watch and the worst entertainment for many years Despite Mourinho's reputation, I mean, that sounds exactly <laughs> like Mourinho's reputation to me. Yeah, if this was any other coach at Roma in recent memory, he'd be sacked. What are your thoughts, uh, Lars? Well, I'm just noticing now they have the lowest xG against in the league so far, so that's uh, <laughs> that's something. I'm thinking Mourinho would claim that as a sign that he's doing great work. Certainly, if it was put to him, he would do that. Uh, they they are you, you were hoping for a little bit more, I I, I suppose. But Mourinho is doing his Mourinho things, but they've they've been uh, dropping too many points for sure. They've not. I mean, they've scored they scored twenty three goals in eighteen. Like that's the same number of goals scored as Salernitana, who are sixteenth and just you know conceded eight. So it's it's not uh, it's not really clicking down the other end. Is the short answer, which is exactly I guess what you'd expect. Uh, what about Atalanta, Nicky? You know, they're obviously you know I feel like one of your favourites. How how is Gasparini getting on? Yeah, well, they had quite an astonishing uh, game at the weekend. I know Philippe enjoyed this because they were up against Salernitana, who had Mimo Ochoa in goal, uh, who, as I was being told, used to wear number eight shirt, uh, the Ocho, and conceded eight times to Atalanta this weekend. Uh, This was, I mean, this was an incredible game. Um, Not absolutely uh, a result that I was, um, I expected Atalanta to win, but eight goals is a bit... They haven't been at that level all season, put it that way. Atlanta are, are definitely in a sort of slightly sort of rebuilding phase, it feels like, with Zapata's been injured so much. It's felt like they often haven't had a regular figure leading the line. They have had some some strong individual performances through the season. Actually, Adamola Lugman's had a really good season there. Um, but this game was all about um, Rasmus Hoyland uh, up front. Really, really impressive performance from him and uh, excited to see where, where he's going to kick on because um, only 19 years old and feels very much in that mould of players that Atlanta unearth and turn into turn into gems before selling them on before they get um before they uh, get a chance to, to go wrong. Before we let you go, Nikki, um I, I just we we'd obviously spoke at length about Gianluca Vialli, uh, the pod after he passed away, but your thoughts and, and the, the reaction from Italy as well. I don't know what else I have to say because I spoke about him quite a lot of the time. Um, you know, it, it's heartbreaking. He's um one of those figures who just radiated warmth and 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 charm and um optimism i think in the way that he sort of carried himself and 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 brought that to to football and there's been a, a huge outpouring of grief for him every obviously all over italy but especially in in genova at sampdoria um and and turin with with juventus where where he was but i think really actually sort of the last chapter I suppose that Euros win with Mancini took him from being club icon to to a real like national treasure if you will like someone who really felt like the whole country felt that connection to him in some way so it's it's um it feels like this has been a, a period of, of lots of loss in football doesn't it it feels like it you know the end of last year the beginning of this year has been just awful um but for Italy Mike Viali is is clearly um the one that, that stands out above all of them. Mm, yeah, I mean, that image of him and 
Mancini, we talked about it on a previous pod, is just incredibly moving at the end of uh, the Euros, obviously. Uh, thanks come, for coming on, Nikki. Uh, I know you're incredibly busy today, so I appreciate your time. Cheers, Nikki. No worries. That'll do for part one. Uh, part two will begin um, with the Classico uh, in Saudi Arabia. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so, Real Madrid won Barcelona three in the Supercopa last week. Uh, you watched the game, uh, Philip. Yep. Uh, it was uh, in Saudi Arabia. That's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think we could probably find a way to carry on with the zombie references and so forth because it's totally dystopian. Um Suddenly, uh, this competition has been uprooted because it is a it is a proper competition, so to speak, because it's got semi-finals and a final. It was uprooted and sent for financial reasons to uh, to Saudi Arabia in this huge stadium, which was quite full, but where there were absolutely no Spanish fans to speak of. I checked with Sid, he said, you know, a handful perhaps travelled. But otherwise, there were people whose allegiances, uh, Saudi nationals whose allegiances to Real Madrid and Barcelona were quite clear. It was rather a strange experience. Um, it was also a strange experience in terms of, you got the feeling, and I, I don't know if Lars shares that, that, uh, that opinion that Real Madrid seemed to show as much enthusiasm for this game as uh, Tottenham did in their first half against Arsenal. Uh, <laughs> just to shoehorn another reference to the London derby. But um, yeah, it was, if you, if you put aside, which is very difficult, the actual framing of, of this game, uh, if you looked at it, you would wonder whether those two teams are spoken of to be contenders for the title in Spain, because it was obvious there was only one, just Barca. Barca were actually to... They were absolutely terrific, but Real Madrid were nowhere and not seemingly interested until very, very, very late when a couple of substitutions um, had a, a minimal impact on what had been a one-way traffic and with a, a very, very good uh, Barcelona side, which uh, totally deserved its 3-0 win. Uh, by the way, three goals, I think, uh, Gavi Pedrin and uh, Lewandowski, their first goal, first goals in the Clasico as mm -hmm. well, all three of them. And uh, right. yeah, they were they were they were impressive, but again, it's difficult to to gauge exactly what level of engagement um, Real Madrid had in this game. Maybe I'm being a bit too generous because, in a way, I'm making an excuse for Real Madrid, saying maybe they're better than what we saw because they didn't really care. But maybe that's not true. Maybe they're not that good. <laughs> Lars, yeah, no, you know, no, that was what I was going to say. I was going to display 
what a good sport I am and continue on this riff of the North London Derby of saying there is an interesting discussion to be had both here and with regards to the North London Derby of whether there was a lack of application uh, or, or if they're just bad. Uh, now, we should be wary of this. It's something that older players often say is that if a 25-year-old player has a bad game, he has a bad game. Whereas if a 35-year-old player has a bad game, then, well, it must be because they're finished. You know, there's a fallacy there. Um, but it was hard not to look at the Real Madrid midfield in this game with no Tramani to, to help out with with the legwork and, and Camavinga not really grabbing a hold of the game. That that Cross and Modric were looking a little bit little bit leggy compared to the far more buzzing and active and aggressive and sharp uh, Barcelona players. Barcelona, who also I thought were very clever in basically playing an extra central midfielder here and not just playing the, the Busquets Pedri Gavi uh, triumvirate, but actually uh, shoving Frankie de Jong in there, which meant Gavi got pushed up onto the wing. But it, still, you basically have four dudes in there who do the midfield thing. So they were a little bit outnumbered in that sense, Real Madrid. I mean, te- theoretically, Valverde could drop in and help out, but that didn't really happen. So you had. Kamavinga, who again didn't have his best game, he's very young, etc. And then Kroos and Modric versus four very, very good midfielders who just moved the ball so well and they were so sharp in their movements. They were so they were much more aggressive. Barcelona looked like yeah, they were a lot better than Real Madrid here. It's interesting when Casemiro went to Manchester United, that most of the talk was look, Real Madrid, you know, Real Madrid wanted to let him go anyway. You know, they've got they've got Chumani, they've you know, they've got Kamavinga. You know, he he was kind of done. Man United have got this dud. And now sort of Casemiro is, you know, playing 60-yard raking balls. <laughs> I never necessarily saw him do for Real Madrid. And now we've got Cruz and Modric. Modric finally getting tired, love. Yeah, well, I, I think that's an exaggeration. But I do think Real Madrid are savvy enough to know that when they bought Chouameni, so they they already you know they have someone who could feasibly come in and learn that position even though he's a little bit more of a box to box guy point being they have someone who could feasibly be the guy in their midfield for the next decade uh, and you get that kind of offer for a guy who's Casemiro's age like everyone in the world who's not on Premier League or PSG money has to consider that uh, so, mm. so so that was more of a you know it's easier to let the Casemiro go when you have a potential next Casemiro in your squad already, right? But uh, it's true that I I think it's more a case of having to look at this and again, being wary of what I just said about how quick we can be to write off older players when they've just had a bad game. But but can you do both Kroos and Modric in the same midfield going forward against the very, very, very top teams is, is a question I think that, that needs to be asked. And, and I'm sure something for, for Ancelotti to ponder. And there's the thing, sometimes you can, you can talk about the rhythm of a team and, and the rhythm of Barcelona was, was great. Um, but there's, there are two things. Now, the rhythm, there's the rhythm and then there's the beat. And the problem is that uh, the rhythm was poor with with Real Madrid because players were playing at different beats. They were not playing to a quick track. Um, So you had Vinicius who was trying things on his own at kind of high tempo. You had Karim Benzema who looked, how would I say, (sighs) it looked like he was wearing several shirts. Which is understandable. All right, he's, he's he's gone all Calvin Phillips, has he? Mm, so. I wouldn't go that far, but it, anyway, he's coming back from a long layoff, and it's quite understandable that it would take him some time to regain full fitness and so forth. But 
it seemed that they were, yes, playing at different beats, and therefore there was no rhythm. That was the reason why. It was not just that they were slow. It's that you looked at uh, the way they approached the game. Benzema was dropping so far back. He was almost on the same line as his central defenders uh, at times. It was ridiculous. Now, he does that. It's part of his game. But when he does that and it's working, which he did in the Champions League last season, uh, it's because precisely he's part of an ensemble which knows how to accommodate this. And somebody would come at the front and take his place as a temporary number nine or temporary winger or whatever. There, it was completely disconnected. Again, it was all people playing at different beats and a rhythm which was non-existent in the end. Whereas Barcelona, everybody was really singing of the same chart. Absolutely no problem. I mean, the North London derby yet again looms large. And now if you have a... If your main... Uh, goal threat is also one of your more important playmakers than that 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 is a concern for a team and it's not an ideal situation you can't sing and play the drums unless you're <laughs> phil collins right <laughs> can you just explain to uh some people who might not really be following follow spanish football all the time as to what what is the super what is this competition Lars? like who who is in this traditionally it was two-legged and played before the beginning of the season uh but uh, lately it has sort of... Between what? The winner of the cup and the league? Yes. This is the charity shield, right? Yes. Recently it was uh, effectively sold off <laughs> to Out Foreign uh, in, in, a, in a very lucrative deal. Uh, so, so the last... So, uh, this is... Yeah, four, four out of, three out of the last four has have been played in Saudi Arabia. And what they've done... Now, cynics might suggest <laughs> that uh, they've expanded it to include semifinals. So there's four teams involved. Now, a cynic might suggest that this is to ensure that they definitely get a Clasico, <laughs> that both Real Madrid... Right. So you don't get any sort of accidental seasons when Real Madrid or Barcelona haven't won the League or Cup, so you, you end up not getting a Clasico. Uh, but, but, but uh, you know, more, f- more f- you know, blue-sky thinkers might just see that this is a very innovative and good way of changing the competition for the better, I'm not sure. Uh, the one thing I would say is that uh, I think the Supercoppa is in terms of competitiveness, I would put it above the Community Shield. I think the Community Shield has lost that competitive edge, which it used to have uh, because of the number of substitutes and the, the rest of it. And that's the first thing. And the second thing, to give you an idea of the amount of money that uh, the, uh, the Spanish football made from that uh, new deal with Saudi Arabia, when they signed uh, the deal, which was back uh, in 2019, uh, the deal was for three years and they got 120 million euros. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. That's an awful, awful lot of money. The rest of La Liga, Lars, big win for Real Sociedad over um, Bilbao in the Basque derby. Nice to see David Silva again. Means they're now third. Three points uh, behind Real Madrid and what, six points behind um, Barcelona. Um in the WhatsApp group, you said there's no way you can stop me talking about Alexander Sorlov. <laughs> yeah. So you see, nice to see David. Nice to see David Silva. You say, nice to see the Viking King, the King in the North, Alexander Sorlov <laughs> scoring for his first, his fourth game on the bounce. He, he's uh, he's on Sorlov. Sorlov is unstoppable. Now I want to mention him because I'm fascinated by characters like this. Because Serlos, I mean, there's no time to do his entire life story here. Uh, correct, correct. Uh, no, there isn't. But, he, but he's, he's had this sort of thing where he's done well 
at one level, and and then he's moved up and it hasn't worked. Like so, he did well in Denmark, moved to Crystal Palace, terrible. Ended up going on loan to Trabzonspor, where he just ran wild and scored a ton of goals. Got a big move to RB Leipzig, terrible. Like just nowhere near, and, and looked like a man who just hadn't even played. I mean, he was so low on confidence, looked uncoordinated, so bad. And, and but now he's been sort of loaned out to Real Sociedad, and and he's looking good again. I think he's some, just one of these guys who confidence is really important to him, and and it. It's such an example of something that Real Sociedad have done really well in recent years is that they have, you know, they have a solid core of, of guys who who are, you know, who are homegrown and who have been there for a long time, like like Subi Mendy in midfield, uh, uh, like Yaramendi, who's older, of course, but uh, guys like this who, who have a local connection. But they've done really well in, in picking up sort of slightly wayward talents. You'll remember that Real Sociedad was the first place where Mar- Martin Odegaard really showed what he could do after a couple of loans into in, in the Dutch league. It was at Real Sociedad when he really started doing his stuff. Uh, Adnan Januzaj ended up there and, and have put in some useful years for, for them. You know, there there are other examples. Uh, Alexander Isak, after his big move to Dortmund, didn't really come off. Uh, he, he went to Real Sociedad before Newcastle got him. Uh, and now they have the, the Viking king, Alexander Solos, who's not young. He's 27, but he's someone who's uh, who has a lot of good football in him and who hasn't fully, hasn't always been able to do it. They also have Takefusa Kubo, the, the young Japanese player. Oh, lovely player. He, he is a lovely player, but he's also someone who's had a very strange career because he's been at a ton of clubs already. Uh, in spite of being like 21. Uh, so, so he's also someone who was like a child uh, prodigy, pretty much, who's not quite settled anywhere and, and not really shown the, the, the best of what he can do. He seems to be sort of finding his feet at Real Sociedad. So it's a strange sort of mix of, yeah, of, of a strong local core of players. And then you add a sprinkling of sort of misfiring talents from elsewhere, and then you get them to play really well. It, it, it seems to be working well for them. Jonathan Wilson made the point yesterday in the, the- Monday pod about uh, the Premier League pod about you know the season isn't as far gone as we think it is so so we're sort of our minds are sort of not attuned we think the season is further on having said that Sociedad they've got a seven point cushion over Atleti in fourth there's a real bum fight there from Atleti in fourth on 28 points to Rio Vallecano on 26 in ninth place but but what is happening with Atleti it's not feel like their demise has been going on forever now Lars yeah and and you wonder if it's getting to the point where where this summer uh, the the inevitable divorce has to happen there between uh, Diego Simeone and and Atletico Madrid. And it is one of those things. I mean, it's very, very different, but there are similarities to Wenger in the sense that he's a man who's done so much for the club that timing the departure is kind of difficult. Like, at, at at what point do you ask someone who's done that much for a football club when do you ask him to leave if he doesn't decide to do it himself? Uh, but, but at this point, they've spent a lot of money now as well, and they keep having this problem of of wanting to sign elite-level players, but elite-level players struggling to thrive under Diego Simeone's model of football. I mean, the crown example for that is, is Rao Felix, right? Who's a really talented guy who, who's come in and who's just never looked comfortable in that setup, but the club spent all this money on him, so you kind of have to try to make it work somehow. Same story with Tom Alemar. And, 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 and it feels like we've had the same discussion with Atletico Madrid every year. Are they going to evolve? Are they going to start playing more attacking football? Look, they brought in this guy who's a little bit more attacking. Is he going to help the team change? And it's like, no, Diego Simeone is going to try to force him to play as if he was one of these old guys who was there ages ago and who all looked like Goya paintings. Uh, but but, but there, it's just, 
it's just not really good enough. They're they're dropping too many points and and never convincing in terms of the 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 development that we're always looking for that club to make. It's Goya paintings from the late dark period, Lars. We should, you know, not the kind of sunny, uh, summery young Goya. It's the dark Goya of the last year. Well done, well done, by the way, for finding parallels between Arsene Wenger and Diego Simeone, because that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> of course, they're yeah. so different, but you know, there is a there is a touch of that. Yeah. Well, the levels of culture in this part have been wild, from zombie movies through to rhythm and beat to Goya paintings. That's why people come to it. It is worth referencing Elche, who, and I don't know the backstory, um, but our bottom of La Liga, 16 games, no wins, four draws. They have four points. I don't know what, I don't know what the Derby County equivalent is uh, of the, the worst ever La Liga season, but uh, Elche are currently uh, delivering on that score. Uh, Bundesliga hasn't gone back yet. They've had a big old winter break. Bayern Munich are top of the league. Um, uh, four points clear of Freiburg, Leipzig in third, and Eintracht Frankfurt, Union Berlin uh, uh, level on 27 points. Um, good news about Sebastian Haller, um, who has played a couple of friendlies recently for Dortmund after undergoing surgery for testicular cancer. Uh, he scored a seven-minute hat-trick in the most recent one against Basel, so it'd be great to see him playing uh, for the first team. Before we end part two, you wanted to mention Manuel Neuer, Lars, who broke his leg skiing, didn't he? Which is weird, isn't it? I mean, th- that used to, used to be one of those things that they actually had in the contracts. I remember there was a lot, there was much hilarity back in Norway back in the days of like Stefan Everson playing for Tottenham, that he wasn't allowed to go in the downhill skiing when he was at home uh, on holidays in the winter. And he made jokes about having to like uh, go in the, the the little bit, the kid slope where the little babies were and play with them. Uh, because that used to be in people's contracts that you can't go skiing. But somehow, apparently, that, that wasn't the case for Neuer. And, and Bayern, listen, who am I kidding? They're, they're, they're going to win the league, I'm sure. But they are just four points ahead of of Freiburg in in, in, in second. Uh, Leipzig are two more points back, so six points back. Dortmund are not good enough. It's the short version of that. So they're probably off. But yeah, they've they've lost this this titan of goalkeeping. They do, as it happens, have another goalkeeper who's very good and too good to just sit on the bench all the time. Uh, so they've loaned him out to Monaco and Alexander Nubel. He's a very capable goalkeeper. But but. Apparently, there's no provision for bringing him back halfway through the loan. He's going to have to finish his season at Monaco. So so they're in the market for goalkeeper buy-in. Probably will try to do a deal for uh, for Jan Sommer at Gladbach, uh, who's uh, out of contract in the summer. So he is, there might be a sort of cut-price deal to be made there. Though that will be an awkward one when Neuer comes back from this injury because Jan Sommer is a very good goalkeeper. <laughs> so that's that's not... He's been, he, he's been fantastic, actually. Many people think he's, he was the Bundesliga's best keeper last season. Yeah, that's absolutely. Though, though, though I, I do remember him being spoken about as someone United should bring in as a number two. And I think that that's... Uh, well, that that would be silly. I think he would be United's number one if he, if he went there. Uh, but, but certainly there's a possibility of a deal being being done there temporarily to cover for the ski-injured uh, Manuel Neuer. Last when you talk about Neuer skiing, I mean, I, I don't know if you know that, but skiing was part of the traditional preparation of French players 
Perfect. But during the winter sea, I am not joking. That seems unwise. <laughs> You've got to be fit to be a skier. I mean, you've got me Alberto yeah, Tomba. Yeah, the downhill, it's really thigh, bad for your, it's really dangerous for your ankles. I, most of it was of the long laufen uh, uh, ah, variety, but there, but there yeah. were descents as well. And believe me, I've done a lot of, of ski de fond, long laufen, and you can injure yourself really badly. It's awful for the ankles. But that's what they used to do. And for example, Osea used to go to the Vosges uh, mountains and uh, to go skiing for a week. And the, the worst skier of the lot, apparently, according to Giroud, was Eric Cantona. He was always at the back. He, he couldn't cope with the snow. Uh, but there you go. Other times, other Morris. Just snow plowing slowly down a blue run. Good one, Eric. That'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we will do some more French football uh, as Philippe talks about Liga. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. A league out in the break there. Lars said, uh, "Forgive me if, if, uh, for quoting you. The French league is interesting for once." He said, "For <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll stand by that. I'll stand by that." Um, Ren beating PSG. Um, it looked quite cold, Philippe. <laughs> That's your first comment. Hey, there were lots the, of for- snoods. Ilia, 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 beaucoup de snood. <laughs> <laughs> it was not snowing. It was just raining and pretty hard. And uh, but when you say for once, come on! I mean, when Lille won the title from PSG, that was a great season as well. They've been, they've, they've been a I few know, the, I know. In the Listen, recent past, it's 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 funny when PSG shoot themselves in the foot enough that it becomes yeah. The best well, thing, which God bless them, they do pretty often. But I thought, sorry, I thought Philippe. Yeah, I thought Philippe that this was you know Gautier was sensible. Yeah. They were, they were picking a sensible team. Yep. This is the year they were going to win the yep. Champions League. Uh, and it might still happen. And uh, first thing, and we'll come back to that, they shot themselves in the foot, but the guys who were really holding the gun were actually Ren. And Ren, Ren's target was, was very good. The second thing is that I probably think that the, the recent results of PSG, um, they certainly make for an interesting competition because now there's only three points with our silence, who are having an absolutely unbelievable season. And, and Marseille are, are five points behind. And Marseille, the interesting thing, I think in the long term, they're going to be more dangerous, actually, who started with difficulty. And at the beginning of the season, people were saying, oh, Tudor is rubbish. We should get rid of him. And, you know, look at their recent, <laughs> re- their recent results. I think it's five, five weeks. Including the, the players were saying that as well. Yeah. No, no, no. But they've changed. <laughs> Everybody seems to have changed their mind. Uh, but... The one thing I would qualify, first of all, uh, PSG without Verratti is not PSG. That's uh, a rule that's been like this since he arrived at the club almost. That's the first thing. And the second thing, I don't think that there is any other major club in Europe which is having such a World Cup hangover as PSG for obvious reasons. Like Kylian Mbappé actually didn't start at the game. He was uh, on the bench because he was not, well, quite ready. He needed some rest, which is understandable. Um Leo Messi is still on his cloud in a way. Uh, he was totally non-existent yesterday. I, I, I think it was one of those cases that if it had been anybody else other than Messi, and that's part of the Messi problem when he's not performing, he would have been taken off at half by, at half time because he had contributed absolutely nothing. Um, and Neymar was Neymar. So you have the, your three major players... I've just come back from a competition which has had a huge impact, emotional and physical, on them. That's the first thing. Then you're missing the heartbeat of your midfield. Um, then you're trying to bring in, and which is great by Galtier, by the way, you're bringing in some young players 
And I'm going to make you feel very old now, Max, because uh, Warren Zaire-Emery, who is one of the hottest properties in French and European football, was born in 2006. Right. He was born in 2006. <laughs> say, say, say who, who's this chap? Warren Zaire-Emery. He's uh, a PSG player. I mean, obviously, he's one of those, I think, ever since he, a bit like a Mbappé, but in a completely different role, different role because he's a defensive midfielder. But he's incredibly mature. And incredibly good technician. And Galtier has absolutely no qualms putting him in the starting eleven ahead of players who are far, far more experienced and established internationals and so forth. So the PSG we're seeing at the moment is not the PSG we saw at the beginning of the season, obviously. And I don't think it's going to be the PSG we're going to see in the spring where everybody is coming back. And uh, so so that's that's what I would... I would qualify uh, the judgment over PSG and what Galtier is doing. I, I still believe that... Taken as a whole, he's doing a very, very good job indeed. But what should, we be, should be said, and I'll say it after Lars has put in his point, because he's frothing at the gob at the moment, he wants to say something important, <laughs> is that Ren, Ren were absolutely, absolutely magnificent. This chap, uh, Emery. Uh, uh, <laughs> no relation to Unai. Zuccaro. No relation, yeah. Zuc- yeah. Or Dick. Uh, 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 Zuccaro and Mana, Bayer Moreno. Uh, Morena was number one in the French charts on March the sixth, two thousand and six. So uh, Zuccaro still doing the still doing a job uh, <laughs> out in uh, I don't know who's still alive. So there we are. Well done to you. So I don't feel quite so old. Sorry, Lars. Football. Well, I wanted to put a question to Philippe uh, on the subject of the World Cup hangovers and PSG because I was always thinking ahead of the season, ahead of the World Cup, that with that triumvirate that often quite unhappy triumvirate of Mbappe, Neymar, and Messi, you know, one of them's probably going to win the World Cup, and that's going to leave two others feeling slightly displeased about it all. Has there been any fallout? But I will also interject, I suppose Messi winning it is the one that's the least likely to to make everyone annoyed, because I guess even through their massive egos, the two others must be capable of looking at Messi and going fair enough. I think you've made the question and you've provided the answer at the same time. No, 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 but that's that's absolutely fine. The answer is absolutely, (laughs) yes, you're quite right. Because it is Messi, yes. Because I was really hoping Neymar would win it, because he's kind of the poor relation out of the three, isn't he? That would be in, so incredibly funny if he turned up with the World Cup trophy. That, 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 that would have brought, brought a pack of feral cats among the pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to this 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 last game, you know, Ren a fifth. I, I wouldn't ever expect them to beat PSG. Would that, what, what happened, Philippe? Would they just play out of their skin or have we got a, an excellent team here? Uh, we have got a terrific team, uh, and which strangely enough, when you think it's, it belongs to the richest man in France, um, is not a team that was built by throwing millions, you know, firing um, Euro banknotes at, at football pitches. Um, but it was it's, it's built on talent which has been identified early. They were also missing two of their best players uh, in Benjamin Bourigeau and um, the wonderful Martin Terrier, I mean, which is one of the saddest things, uh, I think, in uh, in this season in France, because he was really confirming everything that this, this forward, he's 25 years old, did an ACL out for the season. But despite that, Rennes, who fielded seven players under the age of 22. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Controlled that game uh, they've got an absolutely magnificent 
captain in Amari Traoré who uh, scored the winning goal. Totally deserved it. Um, I mean, I mean, chapeau to them. Basically, it's it's remarkable what they're doing. Is um is the richest man in France Jean-Paul Gaultier or Antoine de Caen? Which one is it? <laughs> it's neither. It's Monsieur Pinot. Monsieur Pinot, as in Monsieur Pinot, which you spell differently from the Pinot you will having you will be having for your dinner, my dear Max. Right. Okay. <laughs> so tell me about Lance then. It's a it's a huge surprise. Nobody was expecting to see them at this level. Uh, they've only been beaten once this season, and that was in the uh, north, uh, the northern derby, where the context is completely different. They were beaten by Lille, and and since then, I'm not saying that they're playing fabulously well. They actually struggled against Auxerre for once, and uh, just as they had struggled against Strasbourg, and Strasbourg, which was in the relegation zone, Auxerre was also battling for their survival. So, are these the first signs that we're going to see a Lance that is probably perhaps not going to be? aren't quite on the same level as we've seen them since the, the beginning of the season, perhaps. Um, on the other hand, um, they had a very convincing win against Paris, Paris Saint-Germain, which I think, you know, which was just two rounds, three rounds ago, which actually make people think, hmm, actually, this could be serious. And again, it's a team, uh, you won't know most of the players there. Uh, the, the recruitment, as, as ever, with Lens is quite, um, uh, quite clever, I would say that. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, you've got the, the manager, Franck Hez, is almost there by, I wouldn't say by chance. Um, he's not there by chance, but he's not somebody. He was a sports director to start with, and he was a, he was a caretaker. And then he, he was brought in, and he's given the team this identity, which it has, very difficult to break down. Obviously, Lance, you will know, uh, has got perhaps the best public in France, so they're also carried by this amazing support that they've got, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a surprise to see them so high. Uh, not a surprise considering the results, but considering what we thought would happen to them at the beginning of the season. Martin says anything from Philippe on PSG and the mayor of Paris telling them they have to leave oh, the Parc des Princes. If I've understood that correctly, it's an insane, insane situation. Uh, Paris. You know, in France, most stadiums are actually owned by the town councils. That's first of all. Yep. So, so similar to Italy. Yeah. And uh, you've got a few exceptions, but most stadiums are owned by the, the local authority. In the case of the Parc des Princes, which is, you know, this semi-mythical uh, venue, which is also totally associated with PSG, PSG don't own it. They actually have leased it. And I think the last lease agreement was in 2014 for a long, long, long time. So basically, they're paying rent. But PSG are frustrated at the exiguity of the stadium and would like to have a stadium which is as big as, as Tottenham's, just to pick an example mm -hmm. out of uh, the blue. <laughs> and it's very difficult to do that because it's under 50,000 at the Parc des Princes, but they would want 60 or 70,000. So they went, they've already done a lot of work there. But the stadium, to be honest, is not quite up to the standard you would expect from the stadium of a, of a club as big as PSG. So they went to uh, the town hall and they said, OK, um, we would like to do all this work, but we want to buy it. We're not going to do this work if we're just uh, leaseholders. And the town hall said, you know what? Why not? What are you proposing for it? And then uh, PSG said, eh, 40 million euros. And the town hall thought, and people at the town hall thought, are you kidding me? You're proposing 40 million euros for the iconic 
venue that is the Parc des Princes. So they're locked in a, a kind of war, right. a price war. Right. And PSG is uh, threatening, is saying, well, if you, you know, if you carry on like that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to build our own stadium. We've got the money for it. And you can deal with the Parc des Princes and do what you want with it. And good luck with it because you know how much it costs to maintain it. So we are seeing a kind of, there's a game of chicken happening here. I very much doubt that PSG is going to leave its historic venue. I don't think that the fans, even the kind of new wave of fans, new range of fans would quite like that. Uh, so at the, so let's wait and see. Philippe, tell us what's happening. Um, some serious stories coming out of the French FA. Tell us what's happening. The news is that 81-year-old Noël Legret uh, has been asked to uh, put himself aside uh, until the uh, audit on his federation, the federation which has been controlling uh, for 11 years now, uh, is passed on to the relevant authorities and that also his general director, Florence Ardouin, who is also a member of the UEFA Executive Committee, former fencer, has also been asked to be set aside, which actually, when it comes to Florence Ardouin, had uh, an unforeseen consequence and uh, quite a sad one. And so we wish her well because she suffered a heart attack and is currently recuperating in intensive care. So that's, you know, obviously awful. When it comes to Noël Legret, um, what is the problem with him? And this is where producer Joel uh, has to take the scissors and edit the tape, so to speak. He's at the center of a number of sexual abuse allegations, which are taken very, very seriously. Indeed, not only by the French FA, but also by the Ministry of Sport, of which the uh, French Federation, you sh shouldn't forget, is, uh, is part of. Um, like the, the, the FA president in France is a civil servant, which is also quite an unusual situation, but typically French. So uh, there have been a number of allegations published uh, in SoFoot and also by uh, our friend Romain Molina in, the, in Josimar. I won't go into details. I think if our listeners want to know exactly what, what, uh, what is reproached, uh, they can look at Romain's work on Josimar. It's all there. Um, and I don't think there are many people who doubt it, uh, uh, that it happened. And he's now been put, Legret, who oversaw all that. When I say oversaw, I'm not saying he was necessarily aware of everything. Uh, he oversaw in a capacity of the president, is uh, in a very difficult situation, to say the least, and is also in a very difficult situation because, as often happens with people who've been in power for a long time, in his case for far too long, um, they do lose all sense of reality. And uh, he went on... Uh, a French radio program and started talking about Zinedine Zidane and said some pretty untoward things about him. He basically, I'm sorry, he, he was told about uh, you know, Deschamps renewing his contract and so forth. And he said, Zidane, I don't give a flying about it. But but this is the thing I wanted to bring put to you, Philippe, since we're here, because I think the Le Grès story, most of them would have seen just the news story, which is uh, Le Grès says a silly thing, you know, and has to leave his position. But but that immediately feels a bit strange because he's always suffered from a sort of um, occasionally reoccurring case of foot-in-mouth syndrome. You know, the, 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 he's often said goofy things. And I think actually in the context of everything he's said throughout his tenure there, the stuff he said about Zidane was pretty mild. Like, I, I, I was a little bit surprised when I saw the actual quotes 
because because you can kind of understand what he was doing about sort of backing the man he's actually signed a contract with and not wanting to talk about the the guy who was looming but the point about it is as you just raise it's not just about that maybe it's a case that him uh, annoying some people publicly and you know Mbappe has gotten involved and and a lot of people i mean they they're very easily disrespected these football people as we all know it's very very careful what you say before it's disrespect and and for sure this wasn't quite disrespectful that's given them an excuse uh to to get rid of him which maybe they should have done anyway due to all this stuff going on but very often you know it's it's i would say it's the al capone syndrome uh he was a murderer a trafficker he was done for tax evasion Sometimes it's Al Capone. We should stress not Legrec. Yeah, well, I mean, very... we'll wait for the results of the audit. This was a joke. This was a joke. <laughs> uh, uh, but the results of this audit are going to be <laughs> interesting, to say the least. You know, in France, when there is a, an, an official investigation, everything leaks, uh, which is absolutely amazing. It's a bit like Italy for that. It's, it's great fun to watch. It would be great fun if we were talking about things which were not as serious as the accusations. And we should clarify here that the most recent allegations and audit were launched following claims of sexual harassment and bullying at the French Football Federation, claims which the FFF denies. We should also say that Legrette, who agreed to stand down, has previously faced claims of sexual harassment, which he denies. Finally, did you see Martin Ziegler in The Times uh, just before we go uh, confirmed the story that we all suspected in the World Cup that directors, uh, you know, working for the World Cup TV uh, had been told to show Infantino and to show Infantino not holding his phone. And one director actually got in trouble because they cut to Infantino when he was on his phone. He seemed to be on his phone the whole bloody time. I mean, once again, that is not his biggest uh, uh, flaw. But fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah, for fuck's sake. God, imagine being his PA. God, what what a life that would be. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, we'll end speaking about that, man. Um, uh, Thank you so much, Philippe. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Max. Our Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian. Thank you.